Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And today we are going to talk about NBA basketball. Cody, how are you? How are you doing? How are you feeling coming off a 16 game win streak? Let's get to that in a second, Ben. I have, a, I have an NBA-adjacent thing to comment on. So I don't know if you saw us, but I saw there was a, a clip of uh, Wembenyama, right? He was doing some kind of like foot exercise pregame, right? He was doing some kind of like lunge things barefoot, and his feet were like spreading all over the place. I found this really interesting, Ben. I, like, I, I didn't went, see this. I went down a rabbit hole. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? It's like he's strengthening his feet because these big men have such issues with their feet in their life. And then I went down the rabbit hole of feet strength, Ben. Oh, yeah. He's doing some towel Listen, grips. Listen to me, Ben. I consider myself like a, you know, I'm not. I can tell you how to to throw on some slab on that meat sack of yours. You know, I can get what, you some protein what, in your wait, body. What's happening? What does that even mean? Listen, <laughs> we're one minute into the show. This is where we are today. This is the energy. I had no idea about any of this foot strengthening thing. Like, I found this video that's like, you should be able to independently raise your big toe without yeah. your other toes. I went to my wife and I'm like, can you do this? She's like, yeah, I can't do it, Ben. Okay. I can't do it. Yeah, that's because most people have kind of, for lack of a better word, shut off feet from shoe wearing where you don't really ever do anything with your foot. Your foot kind of turns into a, a claw. That's what it does. Um, yeah. No, I know people like that. I've, we've gone through this whole thing. You should be able to do some nice towel grips. You should spread your toes. There's all sorts of activity you can get in your feet. I'm nervous because I'm like a chronically injured person. Like since 16 years old, I've been like Greg Oden, right? Like anytime I step out there, something else is just not working. And now I'm like, maybe it's because I'm 30 years old and I never knew that like my feet could be strengthened. So it's just this whole new world to me has opened up in the last couple days. This is like a Dave Dufour type of podcast we've started with here today. The ankles and the feet. Um, on a serious note, I have, I have a mini apology from last mm. week. Not a full apology because we talked about him and he was there, but I, I, I felt like I didn't talk about him enough. We got some messages from, from from longtime listeners about this. Emmanuel, quickly, for the Knicks, we were talking about best bench players last week. If you haven't heard that one, it's uh, it, it's a fun it's a fun show. It's a show, it's great vibes in that show. I don't know what we said about basketball, but we listed a lot of players who come off the bench and we really tested this theory of sitting around and just saying names of NBA players. But Emmanuel quickly was someone I strongly considered. We we ended up thinking that Malcolm Malcolm Brogdon was quite good and then we talked about all these other players who who could be the next best kind of bench players in the league. And uh Cody, I don't know about you, but I was checking out some New York Knicks fourth quarter basketball i can't recommend this enough if you guys out there like entertaining basketball watch the knicks in the fourth quarter i was watching that game against the heat where julius randall went double bang in the corner after one of the worst possessions in the history of the league hits a three with seven tenths of a second left to win the game quickly had some amazing defensive plays in the fourth quarter of that game i i wanted to talk about that more and we didn't so i'm just putting that out into the universe I actually, I think that Quickly is the unsung hero for the Knicks in that fourth quarter. I thought he came out with some juice, that quick jumper of her, of, of his. Like you said, he's really good at chasing around screens. He's a solid little defender, but that jump shot, like he got them ignited. And I thought I thought the Heat looked better than the Knicks in that second half. And I think Julius Randle's getting a lot of show because that game winner was nuts and he dropped like 
his ninth 40-point game or something in the last two weeks. But quickly, you know, maybe we should have talked about him more. But people, people, just because Ben starts the, like, outro at the end of the episode, there still might be a little <laughs> Easter egg. We we talked about a couple more players after that and quickly major, like, final top ten. Don't t- Cody, that's for the true hardcores. You're not supposed to tell them that there's Easter eggs after the the outro is just a misdirection. So we can say our hottest takes after uh, after everyone has gone away so we don't get yelled at. No, man, the Knicks are a lot of fun. The only sad part of my heart is that Josh Josh Hart, who has been traded to the Knicks and is like a perfect fit for this team and this Tom Thibodeau situation they have there, he's taking too many of Quentin Grimes' minutes, and I don't know how to handle it. Quentin Grimes, of course, is the individual who turned the entire Knicks season around earlier in the year, injecting them with life in the starting lineup. And Cody, I looked it up on the basketball reference. The man played 35 minutes a game for the last few months as the Knicks ascended. And then since the heart trade, I think it's been eight games or something like that on order of that. Uh, He's down to like 23 minutes a game. And so when I tune into my fourth quarter Knicks, he's not always out there. And and that gives me pangs of sadness. I I just want to put that out there in the universe. First, I like the website, The Basketball Reference. I think that's good. Like, I'm getting back to the social network where it's like, drop the thaw, drop the thaw, and all of a sudden, Basketball Reference is born. But Josh Hart, he's like he's like the reverse Thibel. Like we talked about, I don't think he started a single game for the Sixers this year, goes to the Blazers, and all of a sudden, he's starting these games. Josh Hart, maybe we should have talked about him more last episode, because even though he's taking minutes from from your, your treasured Quentin Grimes, started 51 games for the Blazers this year, goes to the Knicks, hasn't started yet. So is he is he a spiritual uh, bench player? Maybe we should have talked about him more. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he now he's a spiritual bench player. That was another thing we said after the episode. We were actually climbing uphill both ways because if you had started enough to disqualify yourself, but then you're a spiritual bench player, we didn't talk about you because you didn't make our cut. But if you were still eligible, but you were starting and you were clearly now a starter and you were going to disqualify yourself if you started the rest of the game you know, the rest of the games for the rest of the season, you were also disqualified. So we were really, we were really running on fumes. We were really getting into the 111th best player in the NBA last week. It was the best. The key, Ben, the key to Calvin Ball, when you start playing Calvin Ball, like you play by your own rules. No one can, no one can call you out for anything because there's just, there's nothing to call you out on. If someone's like, we didn't talk about so-and-so, you'd be like, well, based under like these reasons that we came up with, we couldn't talk about them. It's perfect, Ben. It was, it was brilliant. I don't know what Calvin Ball is. What what is that? Have you did you ever read the uh, Calvin and Hobbes? Okay, I thought yeah, you were. A, I thought you were referencing that. I I, I didn't get the reference. Yeah, um, it's a Calvin Hobbes. I'm not. Oh, I'm man. not. I'm not culturally sophisticated <laughs> because I spend all my time looking at things like Cody. The Knicks in the last month. Have you checked this out? The Knicks have the second best off. Uh, no, not offensive rating. The second best net rating in the entire NBA in the last month and the best offensive rating in the NBA in the last month. And once again, we find ourselves on the precipice of a Jalen Brunson hour. Oh, I mean, first of all, I'm a little hurt. I'm a little hurt that now we waited for the Bucks to end their winning streak to be for you to be like, oh, these Knicks have quite the winning streak. Look at how good they look in the last month. I'm like, come on. We've had like two weeks to talk about. Them. No, it's OK. It's OK. We'll we'll fill into the New York bias. But yeah, Jalen Brunson, of course, is is fantastic. I think I'm a little higher than Ju- higher on Julius Randle than you. Um, I, I mean, his offensive game has quite a few warts, but when he's rolling, Ben, when you don't have the like more sluggish 
pull up three hero ball Julius Randle when he gets downhill, when he's throwing lobs to Mitchell Robinson, who's looking fantastic and, and whose defense I had a few qualms with earlier in the season. I think he's kind of shored some of those up. They're a really fun team to watch. And I haven't said that about the Knicks for a very, very long time. They're very fun. They're very fun. And I think only only Knicks fans will get this next joke. But the thing with Julius Randle is I tune in a lot in the fourth quarter with 10 minutes left, eight minutes left, things like that. And you'll have like four Randall misses in a row, a bad turnover, a bad defensive rotation. He's struggling out there. The game's really close. Brunson's making great plays. Quentin Grimes making great plays. And then with like two minutes left, there'll just be this helter-skelter possession. Randall will end up with the ball. He'll make some ridiculous, he did this in Miami, just some ridiculous baseline fadeaway where the ball goes up and touches all the retired jerseys and the rafters and splashes back down through the hoop. And you'll be like, sweet, Randall got a bucket. And then Mike Breen will go, and Randall's up to 40. And you're like, you're like wait, where did these points come from? How did he get so many points earlier in the game? It's absolutely majestic. Cody, you actually, uh, you you tipped the lead here. I was going to say the Knicks had the second best offensive rating in the last month. I keep doing this offensive rating. The second best overall net rating, outscoring opponents by 10 points per 100. Who had the best offensive rating? <laughs> Why am I stuck on offense? This is, <laughs> oh man, this is an ultimate outtake. Um, help me out. The team, the best team in the last month at the basketball, who were they? So the team that has now been 16-1 and one in the last 17 games, the Milwaukee Bucks have had the best net rating in the league. In the last month. They've, they have been plus 12 over the last month. Um, obviously, obviously winning almost all of their games, crushing people. And if you just pull up their team card on thinkingbasketball.net that we share with our Patreon subscribers, like... In the last month, they're just crushing it. 119 offensive rating, which isn't the best, but it's a little better than league average. And then the defense, Cody. The defense in the last month, 106.5 points per possession. That is the best in the league uh, by a landslide. The second best defense in the last month is Memphis at 110. Um Milwaukee, their defense this season, pretty much any way you slice it, whether they're at home, um, they're on the road, um, they're playing good teams, they're playing bad teams. It, it doesn't matter. We are talking about arguably the best defense in the league, a defense putting up incredible numbers. And I think it's worth pausing and talking about that and Brooke Lopez's role and Drew Holiday's role and, and your guy uh, Giannis Adetokupo's role. First of all, I'm on this website a lot, thethinkbasketball.net. I had no idea you could pull up a team card. I knew about the player cards, but I had no idea you could click on the team and get all this information. I'm learning this in, in real time with the rest of you, so you should all go explore this. This is a just an incredible tidal wave of information. Thank you for teaching me this in front of the people. But what's really interesting is last season, Brooke Lopez, I don't remember how many games he missed. He missed a ton of games I last season. I think he missed 92 games last year. Does that sound right? <laughs> It might as well be. And it, it, they felt it because if you look, you look over their last couple of years, you know, starting back, I think, even the year before uh, 2020, right? They've had these really strong relative defenses. We're talking like five points better than league average, seven points le- better than league average. Like their their season before the uh, before the bubble 
right? The season before the bubble, they were on track to have one of the greatest defenses of all time. And I think it's like something like negative 7.7, 7.7 points better than league average. And then they haven't hit those heights. Again, it's been around like five or whatever. Last year without Brooke, they were closer to league average. It took quite the dip. It's the lowest we've seen the Bucks, And now with Brooke back and healthy, looking really agile, Ben. I think Brooks looked maybe better than he has since that like 2020 season. Um, they're just they just got it down. Like everyone in their ecosystem is just on a string and it's all kind of revolving around Brooke Lopez's incredible drop defense. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. I'm glad you brought up Brooke. He's a good place to start. You started the show talking about feet. I want to go to hair. Do you think he's aerodynamically more sound with the shaved head? Because he's just looking so smooth out there. And maybe it's that maybe it's an illusion from the hair. I mean, listen, Ben, listen, at this point, I'm apt to believe that because it like I said, uh, the the shaved head all of a sudden not injured, all of a sudden moving around. That's a perfect theory, Ben. It's a it's a perfect theory. Thank you very perfect. much. Yes. Um yes, if you if you look at his impact numbers and things like that. His, his defensive numbers, the, all, all you get on the cards we have are 95th percentile and above. So even though I think we think about him as a sort of traditional drop big, he's not someone who's going to play a ton of different rangy coverages and switch a lot and things like that. I, I've talked before how I think um, – having Giannis next to him, having that kind of defender next to him supports him in that kind of role. I agree with you completely. I think he's been very mobile this season. I think he's looked great. Recently, we talked about how Rudy Gobert looks like he's not moving quite as well as in past years. But Brooke, he missed 69 games last season. And when he was out there, there was some stiffness right with that back and everything he went through and this year uh, I think he just looks great there were a couple plays last night so we're recording this on Sunday big game last night between Milwaukee and Philadelphia that that game was awesome by the way Uh, Bucks had a big lead 76ers come back in the fourth quarter and there were a tuple 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 I have lost the ability to uh, speak English not not good for a podcaster Um, there were a couple big plays and calls down the stretch that I thought went against the Bucks, But in particular, I'm thinking of two Lopez plays where I just thought he was great defending Joel Embiid. And that's fascinating in and of itself because Embiid is so big and so powerful that when he gets downhill, like there was one pick and roll, I think in the fourth quarter with Harden and Embiid left to right. So Harden can throw that left-handed pocket pass. Embiid catches it above the foul line. And he was just possessed he's like i am charging as hard as i can into open space that's hard to defend that was a foul but there were two other plays where lopez i thought moved really well with Embiid, who's so agile for his size and then was vertical in the paint and he got called for the foul um much to the you know the the disgust of the bucks fans and things like that but those plays to me, when I look at film, not every not every official is going to call those a foul. Most of the time, you're going to get the verticality on that. 
And I just thought that was such a perfect embodiment of how good he can be and how interesting he is as a giant, right? Like we forget Brooke Lopez is just a giant, giant body, giant size, giant wingspan, weighs a ton. And to do that against Embiid was incredibly impressive to me. You know, as... Because you know, I think if you look at the number of fouls drawn per game, I think Giannis is even a, a step above, like Embiid leading the league. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, we got screwed out of that win because of the foul calls. Like, you know, I've seen enough Bucks games to be like, eh, that probably shouldn't have been a call. I'm, I know now that if you're big and you charge at the basket, you're going to get a good whistle once in a while. So I, I you know, I actually appreciate Embiid for pushing the subject and doing that kind of thing. But what really helped, what I really liked about their pick and roll defense, it's it's not just Brooke. Like, obviously, Brooke is the anchor of it all. He's, like you said, massive. There's like, I don't even know how many players in the league that you'd be like comfortable having defend Embiid one-on-one in that situation. But Lopez... He might be, like, at the top of the league. Like, I don't know if there's a better player than, like, hanging back and defending and beating the paint. But the other secret to that, like you said, is the chemistry that both he and Giannis have and their ability. And I think something that the Sixers were doing a lot more in the first through the third quarters is that they would run a lot more, you know, side types of pick and rolls, okay? And when they would do that, that would allow Giannis, mostly Giannis at this point, help over and kind of shut off the paint because, like you said, Brooke is huge. Giannis is also huge. And when you have these two guys kind of forming a wall against Embiid. That just becomes impossible for Harden, for for Embiid to get into the paint, to get a good-looking shot. And so I think that that tandem of those two and the way that they were able to defend defend the pick-and-roll for most of the game was, I thought, the secret to their uh, defense for most of it. Yeah, that was a really fun actual dynamic in that game where... Giannis would pre-rotate. He would overload the side when the when the 76ers tried to set up that pick and roll. So you have three bucks on that side of the court defending two 76ers, Harden and Embiid, typically. And that did a really nice job of taking away that action. Philadelphia then, I can't remember if the second half or just the fourth quarter, started moving it over to the middle of the court. You can't really overload the middle of the court. There's not a side to to flood or cheat over to. They had more success that way. It was maybe the best game I've seen Harden have in a year or two. I mean, he just looked great. Um, obviously made a ton of shots. The, the three-pointer was on. Made a bunch of big plays. All the passing that you typically see that we talked about recently with him. But just physically, I thought his burst and some of his stop and start looked really good. Uh so yeah, we, let's get back to the box. But it was it was it was a really fun game uh, last night in Milwaukee. Yeah, I don't want to transition from this at this point, but something about those Embiid list minutes. There was a there was a period of time about even like three minutes at the beginning of the fourth quarter. Drew Holiday is on the bench for the Bucks. Giannis is on the court for the Bucks. Harden is out there, and then Embiid is on the bench. I think they went on a fifteen to two run in a shade under three minutes. Like Harden was just. I mean, he looked like prime Rockets Harden during this stretch. Yeah, I think they had five possessions and got 15 points. It might have been five in a row. It was crazy. There was a bunch of threes and some and ones. And and the only other point I want to linger on here uh, as it pertains to that game is the cool thing about moving the Harden Embiid pick and roll to the middle of the court is how good Embiid is in the middle of the court in that Dirk Nowitzki just above the foul line area and even Lopez as good as he can be just against him I mean maybe Cody if I had my druthers I think I'd want Al Horford to to guard Embiid he's got a quite the history there Um, but Brooke Lopez is there and he has to give him something 
He has to give him something. He's not quick enough to get totally up at 17 feet and pressure that jumper. You've salivated enough over the years to for everyone to know. Embiid is so big that when he hesitate hesitates the dribble, hangs it, pulls up into that jumper, you can't block it if you give him any space. Lopez had to do that. I think he might have actually missed a couple, but I thought that was a cool wrinkle last night, moving that over. Um, great showdown between... Giannis, Embiid, the Bucks, Philadelphia. It's the it's the kind of thing it's the kind of thing that might spark some fun MVP debate if we uh <laughs> if we lived in another dimension. I, th- I didn't want to get here yet, Ben. Do do you, do you want okay. No, okay. we can no, okay. we can come back to it later. I'm just I'm just saying. I'm just saying okay. we were we were batting around before the show how we now live in a time where you can't seem to actually celebrate and debate the best players in the league without trying to put them, you know, put one down to prop the other one up in some weird zero sum game. So we we don't have to talk about it. Let's move on to something else. What do you want to you want to get back to Drew Holiday and his in, incredibly uh, impressive defense? You know what? You know, let's do this. You you lit the fuse. Like I I can't I can't hold it in. Here's what makes me so mad about the game. Bad. Mad. mad angry like few like sure of course i was cheering for the bucks right like i'm a bucks homer i'm a fan i want them to win but there are actually two reasons that i didn't want them to win okay one of them is this dumb narrative that i promise you all like i hope i hope ben that this podcast comes out before every other talking point so i can get ahead of this there are going to be a lot of people making the argument that's like well if we think about the mvp race Nikola Jokic. What happened when Embiid played him? He outplayed him. He beat him. He outshined him. Embiid should be. Embiid gets a little bit of a bump here. Why are you doing this? What about the other MVP candidate? Why are you doing? Why are you putting these ideas in people's heads? It's already there, Ben. I'm trying to. I'm trying to defuse the situation. No, you're He goes against another MVP candidate in Giannis. Right? Outplays him. He wins. Right? Because of this. I mean, you go against two of the MVP candidates. You're automatically the MVP. But I think what gets lost and what makes me really angry from watching that game, that fourth quarter was Harden's fourth quarter. And I'm not saying, I'm not, and this is what you're trying to get at, I'm not taking away from Embiid. Embiid looked fantastic. I think he had like 10 assists. He was moving the ball. He was he was trying to make the most of the way that the Bucks were playing against him. Giannis himself had a great game, right? I know people are going to highlight the fact that in the last couple of minutes, I don't think he scored a point. I think he had a travel against Embiid. He had a couple of forced shots, right? And so that's not going to look as good. But Harden looked phenomenal. Phenomenal. He was able to anchor them when Embiid was on the bench. And I think that's going to get lost. And, and it, all the credit is going to go to Embiid. And it's just going to be another like notch in people's belt to be like, well, this is why Embiid should win the MVP. And it just really frustrates me, Ben, that I know this is going to be the narrative. And I know that we can't give the credit to non-all-star James Harden for having an <laughs> MVP level fourth quarter. It, I'm just so mad that it's going to happen right now. I, I have to be honest with... You and ever I mean, I always am, but I mean, this is a true moment of vulnerability. Uh, I did not think about that all, at all until you brought it up. And and now I have to marinate in the anger that you have given me. Um, but still, I don't think you should be giving any ideas to these people. It's, it's not a good idea. Um, because... Yeah, why, why, why would you do that? Why would you reduce 
basketball. Why would you take away all of the intricate things that we just talked about with the adjustments and James Harden's fourth quarter? And there was a really cool sequence where the the 76ers were constantly trying to get Drew Holiday to switch off Harden so he could continue to attack. And then the Bucks figured out how to, okay, Drew's not going to give up the soft switch. He's going to fight over hard. And then, so what they did was they came down and they had someone else run, run the, you know, they had like Chris Middleton's man run it so he would not be able to get over the screen and Drew would have to switch that way. <sighs> what have you done, Cody? I'm glad you actually brought this up because this was something I was I was getting a little angry about with the Bucks. Right? More anger. It, Look at what it's, this is. What's going on in? Uh, I was going to say Milwaukee, but you know, you're you're a state over. Listen, I don't even need to put my chili on a burner. I just hold the pot while I'm watching the game and just like heat it up that way. But what I was what I was getting frustrated by. This is more frustration. This isn't anger. Maybe we can revisit the MVP thing in a second. But I like the defense. Let's talk about happy things, Ben. Let's talk about defense and adjustments because I thought in the fourth quarter, I thought the Bucks actually gave up too many switches. James Harden before, like pretty much any time he was going to get into a pick and roll with Harden or I mean with with Embiid or even when Embiid was on the bench, he was calling up uh, Niang's guy every time and the Bucs would just give up the switch. And I thought there were a couple times where he calls up Niang and later in the quarter, Giannis switches off on him. And I'm like, you know what? Holiday could have easily done that. That wouldn't have been too much to switch onto there. So I kind of thought that the Bucks sort of just relented. This is one of those things that if this was a full series, I would expect there to be some major adjustments. But I found that really a confusing decision from the Bucks defense because they were just giving Harden what he wanted because you get Giannis on him and then you can bring up Brooke in a pick and roll. And it kind of throw things off because Giannis isn't able to kind of help over off the wing or the corner, wherever else he might be. So I think that's actually I, the Bucks didn't give themselves any favors in that fourth. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry, only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Okay. I, th- I, think, I think we have to talk about the, uh, the MVP a little bit. Well, here's the thing. Why, why have we lost the ability to, like, celebrate these players? That's, that's what I don't understand. And I don't even think, I don't even think we, have to, we have to do what I've heard called nut picking and focus on we're picking it's picking a nut you stay with me here cody nut picking that's what it's called it's like cherry picking i I don't think we have to focus on the most extreme toxic ridiculous arguments that take place for mvp but if we scale it back to like the median kind of argument or discussion you still don't see a lot of like put it up on the board, basically something you'd get on like a, like a dunked on podcast with Nate and Danny, right? You don't see a lot of people having a conversation where they put the three or four best players up on a board and then talk about all of the merits and attributes and positives that they contribute and kind of end up saying like, this guy's like a nine right now, but this guy's like a nine and a half, but this guy's like a 10, which is even crazier. It's usually just this zero sum how can how can I crush one guy while propping up another? And mostly when you head in that direction, you don't even talk about 
basketball anymore, right? They're not even they're talking about things that are like extremely abstract, like this this player has team has the third best record in the league and this player's has the se- like what what why aren't you talking about how they play basketball anymore? Things like that. So it's interesting because the MVP, when people have the discussion, it seems like people fall back on like a pros cons list, right? Where you have a list of these guys who are like, well, I want Embiid to be MVP. So here's all the pros for MVP for him. But on the other side, I'm just going to put Jokic up here and give all the cons, right? And when you like match up Embiid's pros with Jokic's cons, all of a sudden you can start building a really terrible looking argument that can like catch the airwaves, right? Whereas like what you should do is you set up kind of like a pros pros thing, right? You set up all of these guys and like, here's the case for this individual person without tearing down the other people. But I think what gets really difficult is when you're trying to evaluate players, there is a really tough push and pull between evaluating guys in, uh, what am I trying to say? In isolation versus evaluating them within context. In, in, a, in a vacuum. In a vacuum, that's ver- what I'm trying to versus say. Versus the, the comparison. Once you, get in, yes. once you get into the comparison, things get, they, they change slightly, if I follow what you're saying. Yeah, but I think it gets tricky because at some point you do have to bring in in comparison. You do have to contextualize them. You do have to bring in historical comps to kind of make sense of all of it, right? You can't just look at one player and be like, well, this is the MVP because of X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, sure, that's all true. But what is that like compared to everybody else? But I think where people take that in the wrong direction is it becomes like, well, in comparison, we're just going to focus on the negatives instead of comparing the positives that they have. I don't know. It's it's people complaining about a nine. 97% on a paper and being like, well, why didn't I get a 100? And I think like that sort of 3%, right? Whatever percent it is from 100 or whatever percent it is from the top of the rubric, that's really hard to communicate as to this is awesome versus this is outrageous. But it feels like every year we go forward in time and now we're 65, 70 games into the season. There's some great playoff races. Every night is exciting. We have what, a, a month or so left of basketball to play. Um, this would be a good time to talk about MVP and final season awards. And this isn't the beginning of the year anymore. Like most of the cake is baked, but it feels like every year when we get to the end of the year, the discussion becomes more and more kind of, uh, about new quote unquote arguments and less about basketball. So as an example, Jokic is not allowed to have his third MVP because he hasn't had success in the playoffs. And Besides the fact that that, to me, doesn't really hold any logical water. It's an MVP. It's a regular season award. Uh, we've never really done a thing where we've talked about postseason success in, the, in a player who's clearly incredible in the regular season. But I mean, I have a quick trivia question for you, Cody. How many MVPs did Wilt Chamberlain have when he won his first championship? How many MVPs did Wilt Chamberlain have when he won his first championship. I'm going to guess. I, I feel like we should get the Jeopardy music going. You know what I'm... <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going to use context clues here, Ben. I'm going to use context clues. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a shot and say three. I'm guessing he won three. That is correct. Wilt Chamberlain won his third MVP in 1967. And that was the year later on in the year, in the postseason, that the 76ers finally broke through. So my point here is not to get into a tit-for-tat high school debate. Uh, My point is just to say, even sometimes when you try to conjure up these things that are like, ah, this doesn't feel right, we've never done this before, 
Sometimes you, we absolutely, absolutely have done it before. People just aren't aware of things that have happened in the past. And I'm, I think it's great to try to use precedent, but I think it's also great to try to move forward and think about things more progressively. And one of the things I feel like we've done in basketball really well in the last five or 10 years is talk more about nuances of the game and talk more about X's and O's and talk more about team building and strategy. And hey, what does it mean to have advanced statistics and quote unquote analytics and one number stats that we cite on this show and things like that. And so at the end of the day, from my perspective, most of the time you get great candidates at the end of the season for MVP. This year, I think your pool would be Jokic, Embiid, Giannis. Let's let's cast a wider net to begin with and say Luka Doncic as well. And maybe you could include like Jason Tatum. Would that be the would that be a reasonable top five? Yeah, I think I think the Luca thing is really interesting just because his team isn't nearly as good as some of these other teams. And yep. I don't know how people want to factor that in. Yeah, well, no, I'm just saying for the point here, not to make a ranking, but to say the the smarter I think, the quote unquote smarter I think we get about identifying who's having the best season, who the best players are, then you're left with a pool where to a point that Cody, you make all the time, we don't have a strict criteria. So if you want to say, well, I value X a little bit more than I value Y, you end up with Russell Westbrook in 2017. If you value Y a little bit more than X, you get, I don't know, James Harden in 2017 or something like that. So that to me has always been fun, fine and fair. We've we've talked about that before, how there isn't a specific criteria. But when you've got, here's here's the one criteria that I think has been consistent since the beginning of time with this award in the National Basketball Association. You're trying to pick from the very, very best players in the league. That's what you're trying to narrow it down to. You're not picking, you're not going, eh, you know, Jalen Brown, I'm going to put him, he could, he could win my MVP. He could absolutely win my MVP. And I pick him because he's a great player. He's an all-star level player. But most people look at that and they say, he's the second best player on his team. I'm not going to pick the second best player on a team for MVP. So I need to identify the best player on a team. And then from there, I'm, I'm looking at my all NBA. I'm looking at my, you know, who's, who are my leaders? Who, who are the guys driving wins every night? So I'm going to narrow my pool even further. And then you get stuff like, well, how much should team record play into it? I think Jokic, the thing that's happening with Jokic is I think he checks all the boxes that are usually oriented against each other. And so people are left with something like, well, we can't do this. This feels weird. Um, and if you want to try to make the argument that you just think Embiid is better or Giannis is better, or maybe that they're having more value for, value for their team, I think you can try to make that argument. But I think the challenge is when you get into the basketball, it's really hard to make that argument. So even though you have multiple MVP level players up there, who especially in the playoffs, maybe a lot closer, like in the playoffs, you may be like, yeah, I kind of want Giannis. Kind of want Giannis. I haven't seen it with Jokic yet. I want Giannis. Um, or maybe in the playoffs, I like Embiid because he can be more two-way. Th- that's all fine and dandy to me. I think that's great. But it seems to there seems to have been a chilling effect on the overall MVP discussion, um, maybe because of those reasons. I like what you said 
in that we kind of, we have an idea about what an MVP player is, right? Like if I if I just handed out like everyone who's a reasonable NBA fan gave him a five man ballot and I'm like vote for your top five MVP, like you don't don't rank them, just give me your your five MVP candidates, right? I don't know what percentage it would be, but I'm willing to bet that like. I'm not going to throw a percentage, but a very high number would have Jokic, would have Embiid, would have Giannis, would have Luka. I don't care about that fifth spot, right? We can kind of quibble about that. Jason Tatum or or whomever else you want to pit. But I bet you those four, and even if you want to take out Luka for whatever reason, because people are freaked out about the record, those other three would be on like 99% of ballots, right? So we understand. This is like what I was saying before. We understand getting there to the 97%, right? We can identify when something is like better than everything else. But then, Ben, like I said... We struggle so much with those last 3% that we start doing these weird mental gymnastics to try and elevate whomever it is that we're trying to put out there. So my question to you, Ben, is once we get that, once we get the cream of the crop in these top three guys, what would you say is the best way to start identifying that last 3% to kind of, you know, organize an actual order of players? Well, I don't know. I, I mean, we've talked about this before. This is why I don't really have opinions that are too strong about the MVP itself. And I talk about, I think this player is an MVP level player or a weak or soft kind of MVP level player where some years they'll get it. Uh, most of the time they won't. And then I get into what I consider historically great seasons. And most of the time, historically great seasons win MVPs, but there are some exceptions. We know voter fatigue can be a thing. And I would say, Cody, if I had to describe from like a basketball historian perspective, knowing a lot of the MVP races, knowing the results and the voting patterns and things like that, we've talked about voting share on this show before and whatnot. Um, I would say that the big things, the big criteria that people lean on, the big levers that they pull in different directions, where your team finishes... Okay, so like if you're going to be the fourth seed or you're going to be the one seed and there's two candidates that are very close in 2008, Kobe Bryant and Chris Paul for the Lakers and Hornets played a game at the very end of the season. It vaulted the Lakers above them in the standings. A lot of people felt like that was the that was the tiebreaker in their head. So where you are, do you finish first? Do you have 65 wins? Are you a playoff team? Are you an eighth seed? Did you miss the playoffs? That's obviously a big criteria historically for voters. Choosing from the players that are the best in the league. You know, when Kareem's team misses the playoffs, Kareem is not going to win the MVP. That's usually what happens. Then there's the one I just said. Who's the better player? So if other things are close, if team situations are close, um, if there's no voter fatigue, they're often just looking for the better player. This Michael Jordan guy, he's really good. Right. Like this, this LeBron James felt well when LeBron James actually broke through and won MVP. I think the Cavs won like 66 games in 2009. But in Jordan's first MVP season in 1988, they were not a 60 win team. Okay. So that's the second one. First one is your team standing. Second one is how good the player is. The third one is the value argument. Well, I don't know. These players are all great players, but look at how valuable Walton is to the Blazers. Without Walton, the Blazers are like a 500 team. With Walton, they've won 50 of their last 60 games. They're crushing the league. So even though Walton has missed time, and I would say that's a another small one that you get 
in terms of like how people sort this out. Well, this guy missed 10 or 20 games, so I'm going to penalize him for that because he wasn't there helping his team. Even though in that case, Walton missed time in 1978, the voters just felt so compelled about the difference between Portland with Bill and without Bill that that situational value to his team was a big one. This came up in 2005 with Steve Nash and Shaquille O'Neal where Nash actually missed a handful of games and the Suns lost them all and looked terrible. And people were like, okay, okay, this really helps me because even though this guy would be sort of the most atypical, non-traditional MVP since Magic Johnson, Magic still had 20-point-per-game scoring averages most of the time. We know Magic was on five championship teams in the 80s. Steve Nash is this little Canadian dude, the hair's flopping around, he's scoring 15 points per game, I don't know what's going on, but all of a sudden, he's out of the lineup and nothing works, so maybe he's very valuable in that in that system, in that circumstance, D'Antoni's new offense next to Stoudemire uh, and Sean Marion. The last one also pertains to 2005, and that's expectations. Your expectations coming into a season have a huge huge factor on how voters vote, whether that's subconscious or not, some deep psychoanalysis required. I I don't know. I have no idea. But historically, when you go back and you look at like the preseason expectations of a team, teams that blow those expectations out of the water, they get a huge boost for someone like Steve Nash in 2005, Kobe Bryant in 2008, where he had come off a summer requesting a trade, three straight struggling seasons, and then all of a sudden you got these young guys, you got Andrew Bynum, and they're clicking and they're in first place in the Western Conference. Those kinds of expectations really, really influence voting. Whereas when you have the Warriors in 2017, you have the extreme opposite, where you have basically peak Kevin Durant and peak Steph Curry, and Regardless of what it looked like, like even though the Warriors actually didn't look very good without Steph Curry and they looked like a 70-win team with him, the voters at that point in their head were going, now we know this team's going to be great, so we're not even going to consider those two dudes for the MVP. We might throw them a couple fifth-place votes or whatever later on down the line. So I think historically that's the criteria, that's the precedent. I know I just talked for like 25 minutes, um, so I'll stop, but hopefully that answers the question. No, this is good. I'm probably going to prompt you to talk some more because I'm, 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 I really think this is an interesting conversation, and I have a question for you, actually. Uh, you live in the team board, so you probably know this. Do you know which team has the best net rating in the league over the course of the entire season? I would guess the Celtics. It is actually the Cavaliers. Oh, yeah. They, they passed them recently. Yeah. Yeah, have the best net rating, and yet... If you listen to MVP conversations, because, you know, I feel like growing up, I heard a ton of best player on the best team. And you said that before. That's one of the criteria people care about. But No, it's only oh, one. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, I'm yeah, just that, saying it's only one. That was one of the criteria. I thought you yeah. wanted to butt in there. I apologize about that. But you don't hear anything about Mitchell being an MVP candidate. You don't hear anything about Evan Mobley, Jarrett Allen. And I think that's part of the problem is it seems like people are like, well, this is a a good team by committee, right? They're a strong defensive team that have a couple good all-NBA, all-star level offensive players in in Donovan Mitchell and and Darius Garland. Boston kind of feels like the same sort of thing. You look at Jason Tatum and you're like, well, if we go down to the next best team and we want the best player on there, it's Jason Tatum. But again, that team is just a little bit too good. So I... 
I think you hit it on the head that it seems to be the main criteria that people just do naturally is like the best player on the best team that's only the best team because of their sole responsibility on that team. Yeah. And I... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. What what were you going to say? I was just going to say, I I think the big takeaway, and you're getting to it, is that people pull these levers in different directions as needed. And yes, we don't have strict criteria. And yes, if you press me down, I'm not sure in certain years if I could pick an MVP. 2008 being a great example, I probably would have voted for Kevin Garnett. But the, the literal, like best player on the best team is not taken literally the best player in the league michael jordan for x number of years is not taken literally right the most valuable player on a team maybe that comes up sometimes when it needs to but these things aren't rigid they're not fixed 2008 is a perfect example the celtics won 66 games kevin garnett was the best player on that team he missed 11 games with a minor injury that bumped him sort of out of the conversation briefly. And to your point, Cody, people are also able to look at that team and go, man, this team is stacked. So I can understand that maybe KG isn't the only person responsible for them having 66 wins. And basketball's really muddy and gray and fluid. And that's what makes it beautiful and fun and quirky to talk about and analyze. Like, it's really hard to say within a specific season that player A is worth nine and a half wins and player B is worth 10 and a half wins and therefore player B gets it. It's a little easier sometimes. This might be one of those years for me where if you ask me to vote, I'd probably vote Jokic just because his regular season is at an historical level. It's just like we don't have to worry about the playoff stuff. We don't have to worry about that. His regular season stats and what he's doing, um, we've talked about it before. I think we dedicated an entire episode to it. Like, he might be having the best offensive regular season in the history of the sport, and that's nothing to take lightly. And so maybe, maybe voter fatigue is something that could work against him. As I said, Michael Jordan didn't win every year. Even Bill Russell didn't win every year. Even Kareem didn't win every year. So I think that's something historically that would happen. But in this case, you're talking about a guy still not playing with an all-star who also is checking the other boxes where his team has the best win-loss record. He seems in the regular season objectively better than everyone else. And he's insanely contextually valuable to that team. They're like, what, 23 points per 100 better when he's on the court versus off the court. Um, But, you know, we do have, as we started this, we do have two other guys that are monsters. And Embiid is having yet another incredible season. So I don't know. Giannis is interesting to me because I feel like he's having kind of a down year where all his numbers, if you go back and look at his MVP season, his numbers are way better than they were this year, but he's just so good. And Milwaukee's back in first place with a 16 game winning streak that again, you look at what's the win loss record and what's the expectation without Chris Middleton. Is it for them to be in first place? Probably not that kind of, filling in the gap cognitively is a bonus that's conferred to that best player on that team. Yeah, and I want to hit on the narrative thing, and I want to revisit the Cavaliers, because I think they're actually a really interesting test case with this, because the Cavaliers remind me of another team that had a player that won MVP in the last 15 years or so, and that's 2011 with the Chicago Bulls and Derrick Rose winning, right? We have this defensively slanted team. You have a guy like Joakim Noah 
Carlos Boozer is not like a, a strong defensive player, but you know, you have this really strong defensive core and it's like, here's Derrick Rose driving the ship. And without him, their defense, their offense would completely fall apart, except the thing that was going on in 2011, there's a couple other narrative levers that are being pulled in his favor, right? Derrick Rose is a hometown kid in Chicago versus Donovan Mitchell being a guy that was just traded there. You also have LeBron James just going to Miami. The Heat are super vilified, and there's there's just no way that LeBron's going to win it. Like, there's just no way he could do it. Dwight Howard, maybe because he made the finals and wasn't able to win, and people were just kind of getting sick of it, maybe he should have been the one that won it. But I think going back and looking at it, Derrick Rose and Donovan Mitchell with their two respective defensive teams are kind of an interesting analog, yet we're not giving Donovan Mitchell even a look. And I'm not saying we should, but I think, like, those narrative levers are really fascinating to look at. And... Yeah, I guess that's my overall point is there's also like these weird metaphysical abstract narratives that kind of feed into everything without us realizing it. Well, I think the difference there is Rose to me is like Iverson, where you have a defensively driven team and you have one big offensive focal point who keeps the offense afloat. And the overall result is, hey, look what this guy's doing on the first place team. And it's like back then we didn't even really have the language to understand that the first place team was driven by defense, right? Like the 76ers were a defensive heavy roster that won with defense and an offense that was good enough to compete. And you can give Iverson X amount of credit for that. You can give Derrick Rose X amount of credit for that. We can't make it through this 2011 Bulls segment without mentioning Lou Dang. Uh, I mean, he was he was huge for that team on both ends. And it was a very similar thing. I think the difference here with the Cavs, and you might actually see a different MVP narrative if Darius Garland didn't exist, there are two good offensive guards on that team, not one. So you don't get the perception of heavy lifting. Russell Westbrook, 2017, offensive load of a billion jillion, scored every basket, assisted on every basket. He actually had more assists than his teammates scored baskets. They haven't done the investigation yet. (laughs) Um, I think he averaged like 35 points per game, you know, hit a ton of clutch shots. That's a, so that's so that's another great example of like it's very close. I need to have a tiebreaker. This guy's had five big game-winning shots that even though if I do a point per possession, you get out all your EPMs, your RPMs, your APMs, your ATVs, whatever, it doesn't matter. They're all going to be close, but I know at the end of the day that's five extra wins on the board. That five extra wins gets you a better seating. It's a regular season award. I'm going to give that credit to Russell Westbrook as a potential tiebreaker. We don't see that every year, but you know that's probably why with the Cavs, we haven't seen, hey, he's doing all the heavy lifting. Whereas with the Mavs, Luka Doncic has been the guy doing all the heavy lifting. And I, I realize as we talk through all these players, I got to throw something out there. Um, Kevin Durant for the Phoenix Suns, I got to do a quick piece on his debut with the Suns last week for the NBA app. If you haven't checked that out, you can check out the the Thinking Basketball carousel on the NBA app or NBA.com and go to watch and, and check it out from there. And the broadcaster, the legendary Ann Myers for the Suns, she said, Kevin Durant, if the Suns crush it to finish the year and rocket up the standings, could be at the top of the MVP conversation. And Cody, I have to tell you, I instantaneously am rooting for a traded player to win the most valuable player in 2023. 
I do think that's an interesting case because before the trade, before the injury, weren't they on like a 17 game winning streak, 15 game winning streak? I don't I don't know if it ever, if one ever got that high, but he was playing great before the injury. His overall numbers on the season are great, and this is totally uncharted territory. So you can get your new narratives, you can get your new levers, you can do whatever you want. If he goes to Phoenix, and let's just I mean, we're near the end of the show. Who knows who's listening at this point? Let's have some hypothetical fun. I might even do a fake outro and then get this this hypothetical in there. <laughs> um, let, let's say Phoenix goes like, let's see, they have, I think they have 19 games with him. Let's say they go 17 and two and rocket right up the standings and finish second. They probably won't pass Denver. Denver has an enormous lead, but let's say they finish second and they and they pass Memphis. Now, at the same time, let's say something else happens at the end of the season with some of the other candidates. There's an injury. They miss time. The other teams lose a little bit. Maybe Denver holds on to the one seed, but people are sick of voting for Jokic. I mean, how high could Durant get get in the MVP vote, Cody? I mean, if I'm being honest with you, I think he could win. I do think that there is a chance that he could win. I think it's just exciting enough of a narrative to have this fourth contender kind of come bring himself up like Batman style out of the pit, out of the shadows to claim this MVP. I would I wouldn't be surprised if I saw it happen. Now nah, I gotta root for this now. There's there's uh <laughs> I gotta root for this level of chaos to happen. Um all right, is there anything else to to say on this before yeah, we get just, out of here? Just a final question. I hope it's not too big of a final question, but do you think a big thing, a big reason as to why some of these discussions aren't quite happening at the level we want. Is it just that the MVP conversation starts too soon? Is it that we start it 10 games into the season and then revisit it 15 times throughout an 82-game season? Is that really the main driver of this issue? Uh, maybe, yeah. That's not a bad That's not a bad thought. Um, just because it would desensitize you over and over and over again to the conversation. And then so to sort of gin up interest, you have to come up with crazier and crazier things to talk about. As you know, we find there's a million things to talk about that I can barely keep up with 10 games, 20 games, 30 games into the season. So this isn't something that's really ever on my mind until late in the year, other than to say like, boy, this guy's balling out at this level right now. This guy's playing incredibly. This guy's struggling. This guy's having a down year. And, and this season, I, I think once again, um, we've been really blessed, or at least I feel really fortunate as a basketball fan, not not just to have a platform where we get to talk about this, you and I, and that's that's made possible by uh, everyone who listens and supports, and all our great Patreon subscribers, Patreon.com/slash Thinking Basketball. I'm not I'm not doing an outro. I'm not doing that. We're still <laughs> we're still in the show. Um, but what was I saying? Oh, just to, just how great some of these top end talent it how, how great the top end talent is right now. Where we haven't even mentioned someone like Dame Lillard in this podcast. And for my money, Dame, Will Dame Lillard's never been a top five player. His, his defense is too weak. But I've done videos and content on him before. He's an incredible offensive player, one of the best offensive players in the league. He's been on an absolute heater. Uh, I believe, I don't know what it, if you bring it up right now, I don't know if we have time to get our stats department on that, but he was averaging 39 points a game over a 20-game stretch. Uh, I don't know if that's changed in the last week or not. So he's another guy like his team, the team isn't good enough. 
do you hold it against him? Is it the fact that he himself isn't overall good enough? Like, no matter how good you think he is, he probably just can't, with offense, get up to the same level as the other three, four best guys in the league. Um, I don't know, but, like, the the top talent in the NBA and some of these MVP candidates is incredible. And so in my head, when we go back and we do historical work, when we try to understand how players were viewed in their time when we talk about the 75th anniversary team, repeatedly finishing second or third in MVP and having a ton of vote share, that carries a ton of water. And I don't think we need to apply rings culture and this like real dichotomous like binary. Well, he didn't win the MVP, so he was the first loser. I think that's all e- equally part of sort of the the shift in the discussion over the years is acting like, constantly being in the top five in MVP isn't an absolutely great thing. Yeah, and on the on the Lillard point, too, over the last 24 games, he is averaging 38 points per game. 38 points per game, shooting 94% from the free throw line. Just on, I, I feel like there's been multiple times on this on this podcast where I've been like, Damian Lillard in the last month has been unstoppable. So, yeah, he... He, we haven't even talked about that much, Shea Gildas-Alexander, and Ben, our last episode, we had a jolly old time talking about players like 50 through 70, right? The NBA is just filled with talent, and there's, there's a good amount of, I don't know if it's parody at this point, but it feels like it. There's not like the Golden State Warriors juggernaut that's running away of everything. There's a lot of intrigue with the top of the league, and you know, like you said, I don't think we've really struggled to to come up with things to talk about, right? And even even today... I was going through some stuff, and I'm like, this last week and a half of basketball since the All-Star game has been incredible. There have been, like, we don't really do gamers, but there's been multiple games where I'm like, we could do a gamer about this. We could do a gamer about this. It's just, man, it's been a really fun march of basketball. We all know Nas Reed is the real MVP. To support this show, <laughs> check out patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. That's where you can get the stats that we talked about. We also have a Discord community, a ton of great discussion, monthly Q&A. Uh, that I get to do with them, but they're in there all the time batting around ideas and solving solving all the world's problems and unearthing basketball quirks that I never knew about. Uh, Patreon.com slash Thinking Basketball. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way through on this one. Hope you enjoyed our, our slightly different, who knows what, MVP. I don't know what to title this podcast. Who knows what it's going to be when it comes out. But uh, thanks, as always, for listening all the way through. And of course, I hope you are having a great day. <laughs>